You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together. We turn to the Acts of the Apostles. We turn to chapter 16. He, meaning Paul, came to Derba and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived, whose mother was a Jewess and a believer, but whose father was a Greek. The brothers of Lystra and Iconium spoke well of him. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him because of the Jews who lived in that area. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they traveled from town to town, they delivered the decisions reached by the apostles and elders in Jerusalem for the people to obey. So the churches were strengthened in faith and grew daily in numbers. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. And when they came to the border of Mycenae, they tried to enter Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. So they passed by Mysia and went down to Troas. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia standing and begging him, come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision, we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. From Troas, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Samothrace, and the next day on to Neapolis, And from there, we traveled to Philippi, a Roman colony and the leading city of that district of Macedonia. And we stayed there several days. On the Sabbath, we went outside the city gate to the river where we expected to find a place of prayer. We sat down and began to speak to the women who had gathered there. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. When she and the members of her household were baptized, she invited us to her home. If you consider me a believer in the Lord, she said, come and stay at my house. And she persuaded us. Once, when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. She kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so troubled that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. At that very moment, the Spirit left her. When the owners of the slave girl realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. They brought them before the magistrates and said, These men are Jews and are throwing our city into an uproar by advocating customs unlawful for us Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. Upon receiving such orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet to the stocks. And after about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly, 
There was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once all the doors, the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. The jailer woke up. And when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. At that hour of the night, the jailer took them, washed their wounds, and immediately he and all his family were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole family. When it was daylight, the magistrates sent their officers to the jailer with the order, release these men. The jailer told Paul, the magistrates have ordered that you and Silas be released. Now you can leave. Go in peace. But Paul said to the officers, they beat us publicly without a trial, even though we are Roman citizens and threw us into prison. And now do they want to get rid of us quietly? No. Let them come themselves and escort us out. The officers reported this to the magistrates, and when they heard that Paul and Silas were Roman citizens, they were alarmed. They came to appease them and escorted them from the prison, requesting them to leave the city. After Paul and Silas came out of the prison, they went to Lydia's house where they met with the brothers and encouraged them. And then they left. I preach to you this morning then from Acts 16, beginning at verse 6 to the end of verse 34. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, last Sunday morning we considered D-Day in light of what had happened earlier in June and what was commemorated as the 65th anniversary of that memorable event. And we said that D-Day was a great turning point in World War II as well, to some extent, in the history of our world. We remarked at the same time that also what you find in Acts chapter 15, our text of last Sunday, also represents a great turning point, but then a great turning point not so much perhaps even in the world, although that too, but especially in the church of our Lord Jesus Christ. Imagine what this world would have been like, if you can, if Hitler had have won. Scary thought. But at the same time, imagine what the church of Jesus Christ would have been like if the circumcision party had won. And so there is this great turning point that we looked at last time. But you know, there's also something else. Something else connected with D-Day, and that's the fact that it's not just a turning point. But of course, D-Day represents an immense invasion An invasion involving thousands of ships, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of troops, innumerable tanks and jeeps and trucks and you name it, all the kind of stuff that was brought over from England to the shores of France. A tremendous influx 
of material, an invasion. But I dare say that in spite of the remarkable quality of that invasion in 1944, there was an even more remarkable invasion of Europe many, many years before. And it wasn't an invasion with a gun, but it was an invasion by the word, by the word of the gospel. It's an invasion that we find described here in Acts chapter 16. And it's also an invasion that's worth a closer look, because it does reveal a number of things for our edification together this morning. So I'd like to preach to you on the gospel invades Europe. And we're going to see that the gospel invades Europe in a rather surprising way, as well as in a rather diverse manner, and finally in a powerful way as well. So surprising, diverse, as well as powerful. Well, beloved, when we come to Acts chapter 16 of the book that we have before us this morning, we breathe a sigh of relief. We know that by the beginning of Acts 16, this whole Jew-Gentile controversy that had been disturbing the peace of the church has pretty well been resolved. The decision now needs to be implemented, to be announced. At the same time, because of the fact that this whole matter has been resolved, you see that the Apostle Paul decides to go on his second missionary journey. The time, he figures, is now right. But before he can go on the journey, there are a few hiccups, if you will, on the way. The first has to do with John, also called Mark. You'll notice that Paul and Barnabas, who had been on the first missionary journey, discuss who's going to go along with them, and Barnabas wants John Mark to go along, but Paul disagrees because of what happened. And so they split up. Barnabas and Mark go to Cyprus. Paul, together with his new partner Silas, go to Asia and to Cilicia. That's the first hiccup, you might say, this disagreement among the core group. There's also a second thing, and that is this matter of Timothy. Everyone apparently spoke very well of Timothy. And when Paul heard all of this, he decided that Timothy should also be taken along for the spread of the gospel into Asia. However, there's a problem. Timothy is, you might say, of mixed origin. It says his father was a Greek. His mother was probably Jewish. And Timothy had not been circumcised. So what's the Apostle Paul to do? Is he going to take along an uncircumcised helper into what are still predominantly Jewish churches? Well, notice he decides that that cannot happen at this particular point. The churches are not yet mature enough. They haven't discussed and sought through and appropriated the decision that took place in Acts 15. So it says, because of the Jews who lived in that area, Paul decided to circumcise Timothy. And then they went on their way. And then notice as well what it says in verse 5, the churches were strengthened in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Obviously, good work had been done in Jerusalem. 
And the Lord was blessing this resolution of the conflict in the church between Jew and Gentile. And so Paul and Silas are going about and they're getting really great reactions. And they decide to travel deeper and deeper into Asia. They think the time is now ripe. Everything's going to go great. But then we hit verse 6. And we come across something kind of strange. It says there that they were kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. Apparently they wanted to go further into this province. And no doubt they saw all kinds of opportunity there. They figured it was ripe for the gospel. But the Holy Spirit won't let them go there. They're not allowed to go west. Immediately west. So they decide, well, okay, we'll go north. They probably reason, well, if that door is closed, that door is open. We'll go towards the province of Bithynia. But again, notice, the Holy Spirit would not allow them even to go there. Now, of course, it doesn't say how the Holy Spirit stopped them from going there, whether it was a vision, a dream, or some special kind of event or circumstances that prevented them. But there's no doubt about the fact that they've got the message very clearly. We're not allowed to go west. We're not allowed to go straight north. We have to go elsewhere. And they knew this message was coming from the Holy Spirit. And not only from the Holy Spirit, because it's interesting to note, the first time it says the Holy Spirit wouldn't let him go there. The second time it says the Spirit of Jesus hindered them. So it's not just the Spirit, but also Jesus Christ, the risen and ascended Lord, who will not let them go in these directions. Now, our text doesn't say it, but you can imagine this has got to be frustrating. First, you think you should go there, and you can't. Then you think, okay, we'll go there, and you can't go there either. And and, and then the question naturally arises, well, what now? What next? Where are we supposed to go with the gospel? Well, that too becomes clear. For somehow they arrive on the shores of the Aegean Sea at a place called Troas. And there the Apostle Paul, we are told, receives a vision. He sees a man from Macedonia standing there and begging him to come over to Macedonia to help them. And from this Paul concludes that God has called us to preach the gospel to them. The gospel has to go to Macedonia. The gospel is not allowed to linger any longer in Asia or Asia Minor. It has to go to Europe. And so do you see how God is leading everything here? Do you see how his providence asserts itself And you know, sometimes it has to be said that that providence, that guiding and leading of God can be baffling, utterly baffling. 
and even frustrating. Now, sometimes believers are heard to mutter, why this, why that, why not this way? Often the things that God wants us to do in our lives are hard for us to figure out. Sometimes it doesn't even make sense. And there are even times when we are on the point of almost standing up and saying no to God. Because we think we know better. But then we're reminded. We're reminded here in our text as well as elsewhere in the scriptures that God really, truly does know best. He knows what he's doing when he drives the apostles, as it were, to Macedonia. It's all according to his sovereign plan. It's the time for the gospel to go to Europe. To confront that continent. To deal with those people living there. It's time for it to come to many of those people who were your ancestors. Yes, it was time. It was that time then. One might say that today it's time for the gospel to go to China, to Latin America, to Africa and Asia. Well, then was the time for the gospel to go to Europe. Because God had a plan. And beloved, you need to realize, of course, that in all of this, It's not just that God has a plan for the world and God has a plan for the church, but God has a plan for also each and every one of us. Remember in Psalm 139, it says that in God's book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for us, when as yet there was none of them. speaking about an individual plan. See, God's providence directs not just the life of his church and the history of nations, it also directs our individual lives. Now, of course, we want to know what's in that book, right? We're curious, even nosy. But God only... Reveals it one page at a time. But be assured, for those who love him, the end is full of riches and glory. So, beloved, God leads in mysterious ways. God also, and you can see that in our text as well, leads in very diverse ways too. Paul, Silas, Timothy get the message and they put out to sea and they go to Neapolis. And by the way, if you ever get a chance to go to northern Greece, you should go to Neapolis or Kavala as it's called today. It's a beautiful port city where you can spend some very good time. But you know, Paul and company don't stay in Neapolis. They go further. They go across the pass to Philippi. And why do they go to Philippi? Well, most likely because it says in our text it was a leading city of the district of Macedonia. If you're called to go to Macedonia, you don't go to the hick town in Macedonia, you go to the center of Macedonia. And that's also where they go. 
It's called also a Roman colony, which means it really is an extension of Rome, even though Rome is far away. It's filled with Roman laws and Roman architecture and Roman people and soldiers. So that's where they go. But you see, there's a problem with Philippi, and that is because it's a Roman city, there isn't a synagogue there. And that's usually Paul's entry into a particular place. It's through the synagogue, but there isn't a synagogue in Philippi. So where do they go? They go to a place outside the city by the river, a place of prayer. And who do they meet there? Well, they meet different people, but we're told, especially they meet a lady, a business lady who sells purple, purple cloth. She comes originally from Asia, from the city of Thyatira. She's also called, notice, a worshiper of God, which means she's a Gentile who has somehow also gotten involved, probably with some Jews and the God of the Old Testament. Maybe she's even on the point of converting, becoming a proselyte. In any case, as she listens to Paul bring the gospel, she repents, she believes, And it says that the members of her household were baptized. So this this business lady, together with her children, probably her husband, her servants, they're all baptized. And furthermore, notice that she implores Paul and his company to stay with her. But notice something else. For not only is her conversion and baptism described, but also it says the Lord opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. That's a rather interesting way of putting it. We would say Lydia opened her heart to receive the gospel. And that too, of course, is true, but... What Paul and the Spirit are showing us here is that there is something even more foundational and fundamental at work here. And that is that the Lord is at work. And that whenever we say yes to God, it's because God has first of all somehow or other changed our hearts and our minds and our loves. Yes, the Lord worked in her, opened her heart. She received the message, and she embraced the gospel. Now, there's also something else that you need to notice here, and that is that all of this happens very quietly. There's no fuss and bother to speak of. There's not a lot of commotion or excitement. No, Lydia embraces the gospel together with her family, and they're all baptized. But notice, that's not the only incident described in this particular chapter of Acts 16. There's also another. There's this case of the slave girl. And this slave girl, we are told, was filled with a spirit of divination, and she is a royal nuisance. Of course, she makes a lot of money for her owners, but she is still a pain in the neck. For as Paul, Timothy, and Silas or Silas are, are walking around Philippi, she's always tagging along behind them saying, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she says that over and over again. 
And notice finally Paul has enough. He turns around one day and he says not, well, to her, but he really says to the spirit living in her, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And he did. Now that's a bit more dramatic, right? Here you got this girl who knows what she looked like. But every time she's there, she's making a fuss. She's making a nuisance of herself. And all of a sudden, the gospel changes her life. Quite different from Lydia, right? And then we have the jailer. Well, that's even more dramatic. One moment... He's doing his miserable duty. And the next, he's calling out, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? When told that he must believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and so be saved, it says that he came to believe in God, he and his whole family. There was a family conversion. It happened. But you know... It happened in a surprising manner. I'm sure nobody expected the jailer of all people in Philippi to be the one to receive and embrace the gospel with his family. He's not exactly high up on the social totem pole. He's probably way at the bottom. But yet he, of all people, gets saved. So we've got Lydia, we've got the slave girl, we've got a jailer. They're all different. And notice they're all brought to faith in Jesus Christ in a different way. Of course, you might want to put a question mark behind the slave girl, and the gospel doesn't say a lot about her. But certainly about Lydia and the jailer, you have to say, that's quite different. And that reminds us surely of the fact that when it comes to the Lord God and to his saving work, we should never, ever try to hem him in and say, well, God only works in this way. Or God only works in that way. And God can't possibly work in that way. You don't do that with God. You don't do that with our God. Because he works according to his sovereign purposes in many ways. You know, in the history of the Christian church, there are those who say that all those who are converted to the gospel have to be converted in a very dramatic, climactic, cathartic fashion. And you've got to be able to tell other people about the place, the time... The emotions, everything that happened down to the nitty-gritty details. Well, beloved, sometimes the Lord does work that way. If you ask the Apostle Paul, when were you converted? He'll say, oh, it was on the road to Damascus. And that's what happened. This, 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 and this. And then I was blind, and then Ananias came to me, and then I was baptized, and the scales fell from my eyes. 
Well, you know, we don't know how Timothy was saved. Silas, Barnabas, even John Mark, and so many others. So don't try to squeeze God into your particular mold. Because he's sure to break it and in the process to embarrass you. So not only is the gospel the result of God's baffling providence, the gospel also is coming to us in rather diverse ways. And something else to a third thing, and that's the power of the gospel. You know, another thing that you get out of this passage is that when the gospel comes to Europe, it's unstoppable. It doesn't come with a a whimper. It comes with a bang. It comes with a bang of an earthquake. Look at the verses 25 and 26. And about midnight, Paul and Silas were praying, singing hymns to God. That's a rather interesting comment. And the other prisoners were listening to them. Maybe joking initially and mocking even perhaps. And suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once all the doors of the prison flew open. And everybody's chains came loose. That's quite an event. Quite an earthquake. But you know, in the context of the book of Acts, it's not surprising. Think back to Acts chapter 5. The apostles were preaching the gospel in the temple courts and they were arrested and they were put in jail. And then it says, during the night the angel of the Lord came and opened the doors of the jail and ushered them out of the jail, as it were. And where were they the next day? They were standing in the same place as the day before and they were preaching the gospel once again. And what about in Acts 12? In Acts 12, Peter is in deep, deep trouble. King Herod has just put James to death. And Peter is next. It says he was guarded by four squads of soldiers. In other words, escape, humanly speaking, is just impossible. But again... God sends an angel from heaven and the angel immobilizes the soldiers and he loosens Peter's chains, opens the prison doors and leads them out. And you know what that illustrates is that the gospel of Jesus Christ isn't wimpy. It's truly powerful and unstoppable. No matter what the authorities do or threaten to do, it doesn't matter. God will have his way. That's our God. On my recent trip to China, Reverend Dong and I were in a place, in a city where there's a lot of tension, a lot of persecution. And we met together with... Eight brothers in a restaurant, 
Everything happens there around the restaurant table. And at a certain point, I, I said to these brothers, I said, well, how did you all get to know each other? You know the answer I got? The answer was, well, oh, we met in jail. In jail? Yeah, well, we'd all been picked up for various infractions of the law, we're told, for one reason or another. And, and, and we were all together in this one jail, and we started to talk to one another and get to know one another. And so we decided that we had a common confession together, and so we decided to work together. Work together to advance the gospel. Two years before, I met a brother who had been in jail five times already, and he said, oh, I know, they're going to pick me up again this summer. But, you know, every time they pick me up, I say to the soldiers or the secret police who come and pick me up, I don't know why you're doing this, but it's fine with me because every time you take me off to jail, my church grows because I get another opportunity to testify to the gospel and to the Lord of the gospel. You see, even today, the gospel is unstoppable. And not only is it unstoppable, but this gospel in its movement through the lives of people also transforms their lives. Look at Lydia. The gospel comes to her, to her family, to her household. She insists that Paul comes to her place together with Silas and with Timothy. And she says, if you consider me a believer in the Lord, come and stay at my house. Well, it's pretty hard to resist an invitation when somebody puts it that way. But also consider the jailer. You know, if you want to be a jailer... In a Roman colony, and they're looking for a job description, it's usually not much to write home about. Jailers aren't known for their fine manners and their gentle spirits. They're usually very gruff men, insensitive, hardened souls. A lot of them are former soldiers of the Roman Empire. But look at this. Philippian jailer. In verse 32, it says that Paul and the others spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all others in his house. In other words, they underwent instruction. They learned about the gospel. And then it adds in verse 33 that at that hour of the night, the jailer took them and washed their wounds. Now, jailers don't ordinarily turn into nurses or doctors. But this one does. And why does it happen? Well, because he listens to the gospel. And the gospel begins to change his heart and his life and his personality. And probably he does something he's never ever done before in his life. You see, he manifests the fruits... Of a converted life. So what does that teach us? It teaches us that the gospel not only comes powerfully. But the gospel when it comes into the lives of people. Changes their hearts. And their attitudes. And their outlooks. 
It transforms them. That's what it's doing then. That's what it's doing still today. And that's a marvelous thing. That's the thing we also need to remind ourselves about. You know, there are people who know how to talk the gospel. Some people can talk it very well. But they have a real problem walking the gospel. Or some people can walk the gospel, but they have trouble talking the gospel. But really, both of those things need to go hand in hand. We need to walk and we need to talk the gospel. We need to show that we live a transformed life. And that transformed life has an impact on our communities, on our cities and towns and villages, on our country. Earlier I mentioned Europe. Europe was invaded by the gospel. You know anything about Europe today? Europe's in a sad, sad state of affairs probably become the most corrupt place on earth. The power of the gospel has receded. The power of the gospel has gone elsewhere. China, I mentioned. Asia, Africa, Latin America. Even in North America. In Canada. Where is the power of the gospel? We have Canada Day. Lots of freedoms, opportunities to celebrate. But you see as well the decline, the kind of lives that more and more people are living, lives of immorality, lives of selfishness and self-centeredness, lives without any kind of moral absolutes or standards. I was reading a book the other day, and the man says, we live like pigs. Well, in some ways, we do. Sometimes animals are more loyal to their families than husbands and wives are to their own families, their marriages. As we live in a time of great moral decline in Europe and North America, the gospel is going elsewhere. You see it before your eyes. You see the hunger elsewhere. You see the enthusiasm. You see the drive and the determination. And in North America and Europe, it's a wilting business. And that means, beloved, we need to reconnect with what it says here in Acts 16. That the gospel has the power to invade and to change lives. And that involves all of us. How are we going to win our nation back? How are we going to win Europe back? It's the grace of God, I realize. It's the providence of the Almighty. But he also uses people. He also uses us. Little people. And you know, if everywhere in this country, little people who are committed to Christ would let their light shine, 
And the gospel still has the power to revive and to reform and to change our nation. So, beloved, if Canada is going to go down in flaming ruins, let's make sure that it doesn't happen because you and I neglected to live as lights of the world and as the salt of the earth. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.